Hello, and welcome to Talking About Tumors with Ryan and Ryan. I'm Ryan Holstead. And I'm Ryan Quinn. Today we're going to continue our non-small cell lung cancer discussions and look into uh, resectable disease with a focus on neoadjuvant and adjuvant systemic therapy considerations. Hope all the fellows out there are having a good first month of fellowship. I know it's stressful and a steep learning curve, but everybody's in the same boat. And a deep thank you to the uh, Hemonk Fellows Network Twitter account. Uh, We appreciate them uh, giving a shout out to our podcast. Um, And certainly for those of you looking for a good resource to connect you with other social media based and online learning resources, Hemonk Fellows um, is a good Twitter page to follow. Yeah, definitely. Definitely useful during my fellowship. So getting right into adjuvant and neoadjuvant treatment for localized non-small cell lung cancer, about a third of patients will present with lung cancer in the localized setting. So this is something that you will see fairly commonly in clinic. This is a very multidisciplinary field, so many of these patients will end up being discussed at tumor board with the uh, pulmonology colleagues, thoracic surgery, radiation oncology. Often I find that the conversations around these patients are driven by these other specialties because a resectable tumor really comes down to whether or not the patient is uh, amenable to surgical resection based upon underlying comorbidities, as well as the location of the tumor, whether that can be safely resected in in regards to where the tumor is located in relation to other vasculature or potentially a COPD, emphyseminous blebs. So two main treatment options for someone who presents in the localized setting are surgery and radiation. Surgery is preferred, particularly a lobectomy, rather than something like a wedge resection. Some patients may end up needing a pneumonectomy depending on where the tumor is if it crosses one of the fissures, um, but definitely at least a lobectomy is preferred. Patients who aren't surgical candidates can get definitive radiation upfront instead of surgery. This is generally less preferred, and as we'll talk about adjuvant treatment, it hasn't really been studied in this context. It's really more after surgery. The stages of tumors that are going to be most likely uh, amenable to a surgical curative resection are going to be the stage 1 and stage 2. So these are going to be tumors up to 7 centimeters in size uh, with involvement of potentially uh, hyaluronic lymph nodes. Um, T3N1 or stage 3A cancers occasionally be considered, but stage 3 is a very heterogeneous and complicated um, stage, and we're going to dedicate an entire discussion to that later on. Now, unlike some other cancers like breast cancer, the recurrence rates and overall survival after early stage lung cancer still are actually fairly poor. And the recurrence risk varies by stage, but it can be up to 50% of patients having recurrence after surgery. Take a look at the survival curves um, that are available on UpToDate or in textbooks. Um, even in stage 1A disease, five-year survival is 73%, and this has a drop to less than 50% at stage 2A, and with very dismal five-year survivals of less than 25% once you move into stage 3 or greater disease. So that really led to, you know, thinking about adjuvant treatment to try to improve on these outcomes. There is also still a risk of getting another secondary lung cancer after surgery because many of these patients are smokers, um, still maybe smoking or even with a history of prior smoking, you know, they're still amenable to getting another secondary lung cancer. A lot of the studies that we use to dictate our understanding of surgical approach and outcomes in these patients are a bit outdated now. They use older staging criteria, and a lot of these predated the utilization of PET scans, which have been very helpful for uh, staging. Um, So a lot of outcomes in some of these older studies may be a bit worse because we might have missed uh, subclinical metastatic disease or bony disease or even uh, brain mets. And as now for any surgically resected patient, often a full workup for metastatic disease would be part of the standard approach. 
A lot of things have changed in the HACC 7th edition to 8th edition for lung cancer, and there's some good websites that have shown um, uh, comparisons of these two. Radiopedia is one I like to use myself. I'll link to that in the show notes. But one of the most critical ones to know is what used to be called stage 1b, and almost all the studies we're going to talk about today, has now been divided into stage 1b that are greater than 4 centimeters, are now considered stage 2a, and less than 4 centimeters remain stage 1b. And this is relevant to who we are going to consider systemic therapy for. So adjuvant uh, systemic therapy is with the goal of improving outcomes in these patients have been has been attempted with various regimens going as far back as the 1960s. These have been consistently negative. However, a large meta-analysis that published in 1995 looking at all the studies to date did find that cisplatin-based regimens seem to give an increased overall survival of about 5%, although this was a non-significant finding in that meta-analysis. Given those margins, uh, there were subsequent trials that were run from the 1990s to the present that have looked at more modern chemotherapy regimens to see whether or not these outcomes could be improved. Two notable of these early trials was the IAL TREAT trial, which included patients that were stage 1 to 3, so a very wide range of patients, using a any cisplatin doublet with inclusion or exclusion of radiation therapy. This study randomized patients one-to-one um, with the primary outcome of overall survival. In this trial, patients could have any cisplatin doublet. This could include etoposide, venerelbine, vinblastine, vincristine. They did find that approximately uh, 5% um, improved overall survival, specifically 445 versus 40.4%. This was a positive trial in terms of overall survival and did seem to confirm the previous findings of the meta-analysis. A more impressive study that kind of stands alone in the extended benefit was the JBR10 trial. This is a bit cleaner. It only used patients with cisplatin and venerelbine and compared them to observation alone in stage 1b and stage 2 disease. Only half the patients were able to complete all four regimens, but at the time of final analysis, the overall survival was significantly improved from a median of 94 months to 73 months, with a five-year overall survival increase of about 15% of 69% versus 54%. 15% is way higher than we've seen in any other trials, and there's been thoughts that this might be a bit of a fluke, maybe just an abnormality in the single trial. Others have questioned whether or not vidnorelbine is it's there's something unique about it. There has been no other trial that's shown s- such a benefit to date, including others that have looked at vinorelbine since then. So this brings us to one of the landmark meta-analyses called the LACE meta-analysis, which stands for Long Adjuvant Cisplatin Evaluation. This included the five largest trials in the adjuvant setting, all containing cisplatin doublets, and it included about 4,600 patients, and median follow-up was 5.2 years. This showed that at five years, there was a 5% overall survival benefit in the use with the use of adjuvant chemotherapy. Now, this did vary by stage, however. Stage 1a actually showed a worse, a trend towards worse overall survival in patients that got adjuvant chemotherapy. So because of that, we don't use adjuvant chemo in patients with stage 1a disease. Most of the benefit was actually in stage 2 to 3. Stage 1b showed a trend towards improved overall survival, but it was not statistically significant. And as Ryan had mentioned earlier, stage 1b has now actually been broken up into patients with greater than 4 centimeters um, are actually now included as stage 2a. This 4 centimeter division was based upon a later clinical trial run by the CALGB that was looking at a carboplatin doublet in the adjuvant setting. This trial was actually negative overall. However, when they looked specifically at patients with tumors that are greater than 4 centimeters, they did find a numerically greater survival benefit. And this has led to kind of a general consensus that those stage 1Bs that are greater than 4 centimeters are high enough risk to benefit from systemic therapy. 
Also in the LACE meta-analysis, they found that patients with only with ECOG 0 and 1 seem to benefit, with those ECOG 2 seeming to derive no benefit and potentially worse overall survival, much like the stage 1A patients. So now that we spoke about who would qualify to receive adjuvant chemotherapy, you know, the next question is, what is the optimal regimen? Unfortunately, we don't really have an answer to this, as many of the studies have been done using either physician's choice chemotherapy or different chemotherapy regimens. So there's really no data on which one is the best. So as Ryan had said, the historical studies were done using cisplatin doublets with um, either vinca alkaloids like vinarelbine or vincristine or atopicide, gemcitabine. Now some of the more modern regimens are being used, such as cisplatin and pemetrexid in the setting of non-squamous cancers, or cisplatin docetaxel or cisplatin gemcitabine for squamous cancers. Of the data that we have, there is there are, is one phase 3 trial that compared cisplatin vinarelbine to cisplatin pemetrexid for adenocarcinomas. This showed that there was no overall survival difference. However, the, the pemetrexid did seem to be slightly better tolerated and more patients were able to complete the therapy. However, this did not lead to any meaningful improvement in overall survival. Yeah, this trial, some limitations. It was only run in Japan. It was a superiority trial, so it was powered to show whether or not cisplatin pemetrexid was better than cisplatin and venerelbine. It was a negative trial, although numerically both patients seemed to do similar. It's hard to, from a statistical standpoint to conclusively say that cisplatin pemetrexid is as good as cisplatin venerelbine, but given that uh, another non-inferior trial is unlikely to be performed, the general consensus has been that um, the pemetrexid is likely as good as, as a backbone. There's also been attempts at substituting carboplatin. I'd already mentioned the 1CALGB trial that was a, a negative trial using carboplatin. And to date, there are no carboplatin-based adjuvant regimens that have shown improvements in overall survival compared to best supportive care, and this would be considered to be an inferior chemo backbone. So to date, cisplatin and some modern com- component, whether or not that's vinaralbine or another vinca alkaloid, pemetrexid or atopicide, atopicide being less preferred just due to the inconvenience of three days in a row of infusions, uh, would be part of the standard adjuvant approach. And these are all typically given for four cycles. If you remember back from our colon cancer discussions, the VEGF inhibitor bevacizumab, this was actually looked at in combination with cisplatin doublet to see if this would add anything. However, these studies showed no benefit, so this is not standard to add bevacizumab. There's also been some interest at better characterizing patients that would be a high risk for recurrence. And there's been some subgroups post-hoc analyses done looking at tumors that are either high grade or tumors that have what's called um, tumor um, invading through the airspace, STAS, which is when they look in the pathology, they'll see tumor cells within the airspaces between lung parenchyma beyond the edge of the main tumor. Some smaller studies have suggested that possibly these patients are also likely to benefit from systemic therapy, although the quality of this evidence is less and approach to these patients will vary based upon uh, where you practice. So as we've seen in the metastatic setting, the addition of immunotherapy has changed the treatment algorithm for non-small cell lung cancer. And this has also been looked at in the adjuvant setting. So both pembrolizumab and atezolizumab have approvals in this setting. The first one to be studied was atezolizumab in the EMPOWER 010 study. This was looking at adding atezolizumab for one year after completing four cycles of a cisplatin doublet. This study included patients with stage 2 to stage 3. This is what the newer staging, so it included 
patients with uh, node negative but greater than four centimeter tumors. And it included 880 patients. And patients were randomized to, again, either atezolizumab for six, 16 cycles versus just supportive care after chemotherapy. This was not a blinded study. The primary endpoint was disease-free survival in patients with a PDL one greater than 1%. So you mentioned that both of these patients had a, a run-in where they received chemotherapy for four cycles prior to the um, randomization of atezolizumab or best supportive care. So at median follow-up of 33 months, there was a disease-free survival benefit of 42 months versus 35 months. Most of this benefit was from the patients that had a PDL one greater than 1%. In that case, it was not reached versus 35 months. So far, the overall survival data is immature, so we don't know the impact on overall survival. The benefit seemed highest in the patients with the highest PDL one such as those with greater than 50%, and those with the highest stage, such as stage 3A. It's also important to note that when they looked at the subset of patients that were EGFR positive or ALK positive. These are smaller numbers, so the study was not powered for this, but um, it seemed that these patients did not benefit. This is a shared finding in a lot of early immune therapy studies that have included EGFR patients. Typically, these cohorts do not seem to benefit very well. The general opinion is that EGFR patients are unlikely to have significant benefit from an immune checkpoint inhibitor. There's a very similarly designed trial using pembrolizumab. Also had a chemo run-in for patients with stage 2 to 3. In this case, the study was blinded. Randomized 1,178 patients. Found also an improvement in outcomes with median disease free survival, 54 versus 42 months. And the 3-year, well, 58 versus 50%, which is quite similar to the 56 versus 49% seen in the atezolizumab all-population group. Interestingly, in the pembrolizumab trial, the small number of patients who were EGFR positive did seem to have some benefit in the subgroup analysis. And in both these trials, it's still too early to comment on overall survival. So because of this, adjuvant atezolizumab is approved for patients with a pdl one greater than 1%, and pembrolizumab is also approved in the adjuvant setting regardless of the pdl one status. So one of the hot topics is adjuvant EGFR targeting therapy, such as adjuvant osimertinib with the recent ADORA trial. We're going to dedicate an entire episode on this and do a journal club of ADORA, so we won't get into it too much in detail now. But for patients that are EGFR positive, adjuvant osimertinib for three years after completion of chemotherapy did show both a disease-free survival benefit and an overall survival benefit, which was recently presented at ASCO. So this is an option for patients that are EGFR positive. However, stay tuned because we will be discussing this in detail because there were some flaws with the study. So moving into the neoadjuvant space, as with all the disease sites we've spoken about to date, there's been a lot of interest of giving chemotherapy beforehand, especially when patients are likely to need in the adjuvant space. For all the same reasons in lung cancer, there is a long recovery following a lung surgery. These are not easy regimens to go through, and even more so when you're post-operative. Furthermore, there's thought that giving chemotherapy sooner may lead to a less invasive surgery. The trials prior to immune therapy had been generally small, but did seem to show at least a disease-free survival benefit. There's been some controversial data of trying to convert stage 3 to resectable disease. Um, we'll discuss this at our later discussion on stage 3 tumors. More recently, the bulk of the data has been looking at utilizing uh, new adjuvant immune therapies with the same reason as in melanoma where having more tumor present may increase the likelihood of activating tumor invading lymphocytes. This is all still very recent data having just published in 2022 and 2023 and there still remains a lot of questions about best use of these and which patients are most likely to benefit. 
So the largest amount of data that we have is for neoadjuvant nivolumab in combination with chemotherapy. And this was studied in the Checkmate 816 study. This was a phase three trial of 350 patients with stage 1b to stage 3a resectable non-small cell lung cancer who did not have an EGFR or ALK mutation. These patients received three cycles of a platinum doublet in addition to three cycles of nivolumab or placebo. And the primary endpoint was pathologic complete response. So after surgery, um, having no residual tumor in the surgical specimen. The other primary, there was two actually, two primary endpoints, and the other primary endpoint was uh, event-free survival. The primary endpoints were weighted mostly towards event-free survival. So whenever we have two primary endpoints, the uh, study designers have to decide how much of their 0.05p they want to allocate to each. So where are they putting more power towards? And in this case, 0.04 of the p was put towards event-free survival, and 0.01 was towards pathologic complete response. So you need to see a lot larger of a um, significant difference in the pathologic complete response in order to get a significant difference. We're unlikely to miss a a significant difference in event-free survival if the benefit was small. So the study did show a pretty significant difference in the PCR of 24% with the immunotherapy versus 2.2% with the chemotherapy alone. The event-free survival was also significant 32 months versus 21 months. Overall survival data is still immature at this point. One of the concerns is that getting the chemoimmunotherapy up front may make you you know, less likely to receive surgery. So they did look at that and more patients in the chemoimmunotherapy arm were able to proceed with surgery than the chemotherapy alone arm, 83% versus 75%. There did also seem to be more benefit in patients with a PDL1 greater than 50%. However, the study was not powered for this. Yeah, this is a pretty impressive outcomes. I mean, if the difference in disease-free survival is 64 versus 45% um, at two years and 57 versus 43% at three years. So at least at three years out, there did seem to be a larger number of patients that had derived benefit from a nivolumab and chemotherapy regimen. The choice of chemotherapy regimens was a bit interesting. It did allow for carboplatin in this trial, which, as we mentioned, is not necessarily a preferred adjuvant regimen. And they only allowed for three cycles of chemotherapy. So remembering that we usually aim for four cycles, the chemotherapy arm would have had to give that four cycle in the adjuvant setting, which sometimes is hard to get people to do after three cycles of chemotherapy, then a major surgery, and then trying to get that just one last one in. And only 22% of the chemotherapy patients did end up getting all four cycles of the chemotherapy. That being said, still a pretty impressive difference in outcomes. The complete benefit of what PCR means, whether or not that's a truly predictive outcome, is, is not certain at this time. This has opened the door to a new con- way of using immunotherapy in lung cancer patients. I think it's still to be determined, you know, who exactly would get neoadjuvant treatment as opposed to um, adjuvant treatment. You know, there's no data comparing it. So I'm still questioning what, you know, which one you would give. Yeah. And although a good number of patients still got to surgery and in the immunotherapy and chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone. What we don't know is would patients have benefited if they were to just go straight to surgery and then have opportunities for adjuvant chemotherapy afterwards. Another limitation I've heard discussed about new adjuvant therapy is you have to get a biopsy beforehand, and sometimes that can be um, having issues as well versus going directly to surgery and getting the tumor evaluation at the time of then. And one final. One final limitation with neoadjuvant therapy is also that the clinical staging, if you recall, using imaging alone is not as reliable as pathologic staging. So there may be some patients who we are overstaging and maybe giving too much treatment to, or understaging and maybe missing a good opportunity to treat in a different manner. Yeah, all good points. I'm wondering if there's ever going to be comparative studies comparing neoadjuvant versus adjuvant treatment like there's been in the breast cancer space. 
or the other large trial that's published out in the space is the Keynote 671. So unlike the nivolumab trial, this was looking at actually perioperative immune therapy. So not just giving it the new adjuvant space, but also continuing immune therapy for up to one year. This was in patient stage 2 to 3b, uh, stratified by pdl one greater than 50%. Primary outcomes split between event-free survival and overall survival. And these patients were given four cycles of pembrolizumab and chemotherapy, either cisplatin gemcitabine in squamous or cisplatin and pemetrexid in non-squamous patients versus four cycles of chemotherapy and a placebo. This was then followed by surgery and then followed by immune therapy or a placebo for up to one year. Uh, this was as with the nivolumab trial, a positive trial. The two-year event-free survival was increased from 40% to 62%. The median event-free survival was not reached versus 17 months. Once again, the major majority of the benefits seem to be in the subgroup with the pdl one that was greater than 50%. There also seem to be benefit in those with greater than 1% over none at all. Two-year overall survival is still very early, um, but numerically was 81 versus 78% at two years. Looking at the bottom lines, lung cancer is an aggressive malignancy. Even in those who are candidates and go through a surgical resection, there can be a high rate of recurrence, ranging anywhere from 25 to 75%. Systemic therapy has found that some patients are likely to derive additional survival benefit. So large meta-analyses have shown that the five-year overall survival benefit with adjuvant chemotherapy is 5%. The indications for adjuvant chemotherapy are in patients with stage 2A disease, formerly stage 1B, but greater than 4 centimeters. So patients with stage 1A disease and what is now stage 1B disease do not benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy. This benefit seems to extend up to um, clearly resectable stage 3A tumors with less certainty that with those with tumors that are greater than 7 centimeters or tumors that are including uh, contralateral or mediastinal lymphadenopathy. Cisplatin doublet is the preferred adjuvant chemotherapy. In this space, we generally prefer cisplatin over carboplatin because up until now, there have been no studies showing that carboplatin has any survival benefit. Cisplatin can be paired with pemetrexid, vinorelbine, atopicide, and vincristine. There's no data on what is the optimal regimen at this time. Looking at individual trials, vinorelbine has consistently shown the greatest overall survival benefit compared to when combined with cisplatin versus best supportive care alone. However, the value of less toxic and similar outcomes seen with pemetrexid have used this as a good option. Those are non-squamous without without such certainty in the squamous patients, which would be the best doublet to use. So now now some of the more modern regimens are being used, such as cisplatin docetaxel or cisplatin gemcitabine for squamous cell cancers. Immune therapy has begun to incorporate itself into various trials. It's been looked at both in the adjuvant and neoadjuvant space at this time. Both atezolizumab and pembrolizumab have been looked at following chemotherapy in the adjuvant space and have shown disease-free survival. They have not yet reported overall survival, and their benefit seems to be limited in those with pdl one positive disease and unlikely to have significant benefit in those that are EGFR positive based upon the data that's available at this time. For patients that are EGFR positive, adjuvant osimertinib is now approved and recommended for adjuvant treatment for three years. However, stay tuned for our journal club on the ADORA trial. Very recently, new adjuvant trials have begun to publish out utilizing immune therapy in combination with chemotherapy prior to surgery in high-risk patients. Um, these also show pretty impressive improvements in disease-free survival and vent-free survival. I anticipate that these are going to be used more and more often. However, whether or not they're better than adjuvant and who's the best patients to select, I'm hopeful there'll be some large trials coming to date to help answer these questions and best inform our care towards patients. The highest risk for recurrence is in the first five years following treatment. 
So we generally do surveillance during the first five years. This will often include clinical evaluation, exam, and CT scans of the chest at least once a year. On that note, hopefully everyone has a good night and stay cool out there if you are living in one of the areas where it's been almost 90 degrees for the past over the past week. We appreciate all of you that have been following along. And once again, welcome any feedback either through our Twitter or email and uh, reviews, but whether that's on Apple or Spotify or whatever app you listen to us on. Bye for now. Take care. For more information, follow us on Twitter at TalkingTumors, or feel free to email us at TalkingAboutTumors at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. And special shout out to our friend John Kim for all of his musical talents. And he is the composer of the music that you're hearing right now. Talking About Tumors is not medical advice. For medical advice, please contact your own healthcare provider. Opinions stated on this podcast are by the Ryan who said it and no one else. We have no financial disclosures, and this is done purely on our own time to the sake of our enjoyment of the field of medical oncology. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.